You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bible with you, or if there's one in the seat in front of you, you can turn to Mark chapter 5 as the kids are leaving. Mark chapter 5. We'll be looking at another story from the Gospel of Mark. Um, Mark records so much of what Christ did, so many of his miracles. And here we have a trilogy of miracles, and we're in the middle of that trilogy, looking at the miracle as God addresses this woman who has an issue of blood. At the outset of Mark's gospel, he made it very clear what his intentions were. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So his desire is to write a gospel about Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, and to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. He had a very definitive goal in mind. He recorded the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It is not simply a biography. It's not simply a story about a man named Jesus. It is a gospel. This letter in front of us, this book that Mark wrote, it's designed to persuade the reader that this indeed is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And within a few paragraphs, Mark records the purpose that Jesus laid out for his own ministry. Mark chapter 1 verse 15, he said, this is Jesus, he said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So if you want to know what Mark was about when he wrote these words, if you want to know what Jesus was all about as he ministered to people, his desire was to see people repent of their sins and believe the gospel. That's why he wrote the book. That's why he wrote this story today. In chapter 4, the disciples are witness to this amazing miracle as Jesus calms the storm and saves their lives. They see the lordship of Christ over nature. And they ask this question. Mark chapter 4, 41. They feared exceedingly and they said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Simple question, one that you'd think they'd be knowing the answer to by now, but they seem not to. Who is this guy? Who is this man who is able to speak and have the wind stop and speak again and have the the sea come to a perfect calm? It appears that Mark answers this question with a series of three miracles. Jesus performing miracles in the gospel is pretty common practice, right? He he, he went around to different towns performing miracles. And yet these three miracles seem to stand apart from, aside from, his others. And it's not the events in themselves that are so very different. What we find with these three miracles is, is that there is a focus on who the person was in each case. Mark is very distinct. He, he makes us understand very clearly when he... When Jesus goes over the sea and he ends up in um, Gentile territory, he meets the demoniac. He wants us to understand that this man is a Gentile who epitomizes evil. He is filled with a legion of demons. There is nothing redeemable. Everything that they've tried to do has not hoped. He's helpless. He's lost. But there's this focus on who this guy was. And Jesus saves him. Now we head over to the other side of the sea, back. 
And we'll find Jesus dealing with two very different people once again. He is answering the question, who is this man? With, he is the Savior of the world for all people. This is Jesus, the Son of God. His message is that there is salvation, freedom, and deliverance from all kinds of evil. And that he has come for all people. And so, let's look in our Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. So Jesus has just crossed the Lake of Galilee. He's back into Jewish territory. It seems as though he went for a very short trip just to meet this one demoniac from Gadarene, and then he heads back on the ship, straight back across where he was before, back in Jewish territory. Goes on in verse 22. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. When I read that, it stood out to me because the wording is eerily familiar. Do you remember what happened when the disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee into Gentile country? What happened as as they stopped on the other side of the sea? Mark chapter 5, verse 2. When they came out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And then verse 6 says, when Jesus was afar off, he ran and he worshipped him. And the word worshipped is just prostrated himself before him. So, in one case, he, he goes over to the sea and this demoniac comes and confronts him, runs to him, falls before his face. And here, he goes to the other side of the lake and we find almost the exact same thing happen. That this Jewish man, who's a ruler of the synagogue, incredibly important in Jewish society, right? Everybody would have looked up to a man like this. And this man comes and he sees Jesus and he runs to him and he falls at his face. Almost identical. These stories are very similar, but these two men could not be more dissimilar. And yet Jesus has time for them both. And I wonder if Jesus here is foreshadowing what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be like. Verse 23. And besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Jairus here is experiencing the greatest crisis any father could imagine. My little daughter, right, my baby girl, is dying. She's at the point of death. He is in the most terrified, frantic state that he has ever been in. Because his daughter has not just got the flu. She didn't just hurt herself a little bit. But she's struggling to breathe. He sees that the any power, any strength, any life left in her is, is dwindling quickly. She's at the point where her next breath might be her last. And so Jairus comes, and he doesn't come, you know, with his suit done up, with a, you know, a plan for Jesus. He doesn't come to Jesus as, you know, a series of a few people he thought he'd ask for advice. He comes running to Jesus, and he falls at his face, and he begs him. There are times when we have to use our imagination, you know, like how exactly did Jairus say that? How exactly did this story take place? 
I think in this case, it's just abundantly obvious. He fell at his face and he begged. He begged for the life of his daughter because he knew at this point, nothing else would work. Jesus was his last and his only option. And he believed, somehow, that Jesus could save her. Now, this is interesting because if we look at the way that the Jewish leadership treated Jesus before this circumstance, it wasn't good. He would go into a synagogue and preach, but then the Pharisees would would come and he'd get kicked out. And and eventually they were spreading rumors and lies about him. They were starting to hatch a plan to kill him. So the leadership, the Jewish leadership in Israel was starting to turn against Jesus. But here this man who is the ruler of a synagogue, once he has no other place to go, he's heard the stories. Maybe he's seen Jesus before. Maybe before he didn't seem like he needed Jesus really. But now he's at the point where he's in desperate need And he knows that the only person he can come to is Christ. And so he does. Mark adds a small detail at the end of this that seems kind of unnecessary. And it's kind of to set the stage for what's to follow. He said that that much people went with him, and that's normal. And many people followed him, and they thronged him. Now, that might not stand out, but why say it? Isn't it normal for many people to be around Jesus and you expect that if there's all of these people trying to know Jesus and touch him, that that they'd be thronging him, that they'd be pressing in upon him, that they would be kind of um, creating this crowd where Jesus is just getting bumped and and nudged all the time? But he, he wants us to know what the setting is, right? And so picture that. Picture what it would look like for a celebrity to come into a small room and have everybody just crowd into him and try to touch him and try to get close to him that they're all seeing Jesus this way, and so they're thronging him as he's trying to make his way to Jairus' daughter. Verse 25. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment, for she said, if I may touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Here a new character bursts on the scene. We thought we were going to be telling a story this morning about Jairus and his daughter, but all of a sudden we have this new story that comes to light. This woman with the issue of blood, she's had this problem with bleeding for 12 years. It is likely that Mark's desire to be ambiguous here speaks to what this was related to. It was probably something to do with her femininity. Most commentaries I could get my hands on agree with this idea. Now, it's important because it's important for us to understand how this issue of blood would have affected this woman's life. Under Israelite law in the Old Testament, blood was considered unclean. As a result, for seven days when women were (coughs) menstruating, they would leave the city. They were considered ceremonially unclean, and so they would go outside the city, and there would be tents and kind of a camping area set up around the city. And if you were experiencing this issue, then you would go outside the city, and you would stay there. You were considered unclean, untouchable. Any Israelite male or female made ceremonial unclean by contact with blood was required to live outside the city for seven days. So you would leave partially because it would Free your family of, the pro- of, of, of that problem of coming in contact with you. Now, it sounds almost mean, right? And in our society today, we look at that and we go, 
That's crazy. How is it possible that was part of the law? Right? And I get that. It does sound really strange. It sounds very different. But you have to understand that they lived in a very different day than we do. And there were some very practical, pragmatic reasons for this. Okay, first of all, it was sanitary. When we look at the history of the Jews compared to that of the rest of the world, we actually find that in many ways they were healthier than the rest of the world around them. Do you know why that was? Because God gave a number of rules about cleanliness in the Old Testament, and they didn't, they didn't understand bacteria and all those things that we understand today, but by keeping those rules, they kept themselves sanitary in ways that other countries didn't know to do. And so, it was done for sanitary reasons. Uh, we live in a day of antibacterial wipes and sprays, but back then, separation was the only safe way of avoiding possible contamination. The second reason was that women work really hard, right? They worked really hard back then, and we know that they still do now. And so as much as we look at this and we might say, what, you said that they had to leave their house? Yeah, they did. Do you know what they, they, they were able to do? They went outside the city, okay? And this was, it was common. They had all the water and all the food and everything else that they needed. They would go outside of the city with a bunch of other ladies and then have a week to camp together. Right? It would be akin to saying, you know, once a month we're going to send our, our ladies out and they're going to find a hotel outside the city and stay there for a week and uh, have a good time together. Maybe not the same thing, but, but here's the thing. It, it, did, it did relieve them of some of their normal duties, right? It did give them a, time, a break, a time away. It gave her a time to regain her strength and to sleep in and to have some much-needed rest and maybe some time with and fellowship with other ladies. It wasn't all bad, right? It wasn't like they were tortured for seven days. So God's laws, when you actually look at them, even sometimes they sound like, oh, that's crazy. And then you look at why and you say, there might, there might be some reason. There's, there's another reason, but Tara said that I shouldn't mention the sanity of the men. And so... We're not going to do that. We're just going to move on. So, here's the problem for this woman. In Leviticus 19, the law is clear. If the bleeding does not cease, the woman was considered ceremonially unclean indefinitely. She was still unclean. She still didn't go back to her life, back to her family. By definition... She was an outcast of society, indefinitely untouchable, separated from her life, from her family. If she was married after 12 years, she is likely now divorced. She's been ostracized from, her, from society, excluded from synagogue worship. Can you imagine what this meant for this poor woman? Can you imagine after 12 years what her life would have been like. She has spent everything she had. And even the way that that said it almost makes it sound like she was before this time a woman who had money to spend. She had had a good life, a, a prosperous life. And now she's got this one ailment just not going away. And she's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor. And the Bible says not only did she go to these doctors, but she suffered Many things, right? And, and healthcare back then, it's not the same as healthcare is now. 
there was a lot of superstition involved. And so she would go to doctors, and they would come up with these weird, crazy, painful remedies that she would have to undergo, and nothing ever worked. And she'd go to the next guy and try the next crazy idea, and it didn't work. When it says she suffered many things, it means she endured pain from many different doctors. Her life was really rough. She was really struggling. She's sick. She's unclean. She's lost all of her savings. She's been inadvertently tortured by her doctors, and now she has not had any real physical human contact for 12 years. Listen to the next verse. Verse 29. And straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about him in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? Immediately, as she touches Jesus, she feels the healing power of God wash over her body. She knows, somehow or another, she knows, she feels that she has been healed. And Jesus knows immediately that it's happened. It's actually really interesting because he knows that the power went out of him. He knows that this happened, but he doesn't seem to know who. Now, some commentators have suggested that maybe Jesus knows who it is, but he asks the question because he wants this woman to have to come forward. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I don't think Jesus is you know, asking. He says, who was this? And he's looking around him. So I think that this is an example, and this is kind of where, where there's a bit of a mystery involved, but Jesus became man, and he allowed God the Father to determine the use of his divinity. So he didn't lay aside in his divinity in the sense that he was no longer God. And if you take Jesus and you say he no longer had the attributes of God, if you don't have the attributes of something, you're no longer that something. So he still had the attributes of God, but in some mysterious way, God the Father had control over the way that Jesus used these attributes. And so Jesus was able to know, God allowed him to know that power had gone out of him, but he didn't know who it was or or what had happened. So he does what most people might do, is he says, hey, what happened? Who was that? Who touched me? Disciples, do, do you know who it was? Disciples answer in verse 32, 31, is that, um, don't you see, Jesus, there's, there's hundreds of people around us. How could you ask who touched you? Tons of people have been touching you. But verse 32, he ignores what they say, and he looks around about to see her that had done this thing. I love verse 32 because it's like Jesus disregards his disciples, disregards what they say, and he just keeps on going with his work. And I wonder how often it is that in our lives, we wonder what Jesus is doing and we don't understand and we're asking him and, and we're not getting our answers and we, we think that he's maybe doing something that he shouldn't be doing and he just continues to move on with his work, right? Jesus, how could you ask that? Jesus doesn't care what they say. He's going to keep looking for this woman. And so he does. Verse 33, but the woman, fearing and trembling and knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. 
And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Here's the woman. And she's grateful. She's overcome with gratitude. But she's still fearing and trembling. And, And I just love the way that this is worded because you see this fear that she can't get rid of, that she still has. And yet she knows what was done in her. She knows the healing that Jesus brought. Right? She knows what change he has made in her life. And so even though she still feels all of this fear and all of this trembling before the crowd, she still comes and falls before him. What an example for us. We are terrified sometimes. We are scared to share our faith. We are, um, I don't know, the crowd, the people, they, they almost make us want to be silent, to want to just let God heal us, but then go our own way. And yet Jesus says, who was it? And this woman, fearing and trembling, still falls before him and tells him the whole truth. And his response is, daughter. Just the only time in the whole New Testament that Jesus calls someone daughter in the Gospels. Right? Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. This was the woman who all of society had determined was untouchable. I've thought a lot about why did she sneak up so much? And I think it's because she wasn't supposed to be there. She wasn't supposed to be in the middle of this crowd. She wasn't supposed to be touching these people. So she, was, she had her cloak over her head, and she was trying to just get to Jesus without anybody noticing. And so she did, and he healed her. And this woman who was once untouchable is now called the daughter of the king. And so as we look at this story, I want to draw your attention to two lessons. First of all, Jesus always had time for the outcast. Jesus always had time for the outcast. In fact, it would seem as though Jesus would take time even when there was no time. Do you remember how our story began with Jairus and his daughter? What was that situation like? It was, it was life or death, right? I mean, her daughter, his daughter was dying. He ran to him. He fell before him. He begged him, Jesus, you need to come with me now. We need to go to my daughter. She's just about to die. Please come and heal my daughter. And so there is no time for anything else. But he gets touched and he stops. And, and he's not content to say, okay, good, she's healed. Let's move on. No, he wants to meet her. He wants to know her. He wants her to know him more fully. And so he stops and takes time for her. Stopping in the middle of the crazy crowd while a life or death mission takes the back seat. He found the woman. He didn't let her get away with mere physical healing. He wants her to know him and not just his healing power. And he addresses her faith. One of the things that I... Uh, don't like, not about this story, but the way that the story is used, is a lot of times they look at that and they say, hey, people will say, Jesus said your faith made you whole. And what that means is, if you're sick and you have enough faith, then your faith will make you whole. Right? I mean, that's how this story is inappropriately used often. But do you know what the Gospels have already shown us and will continue to show us? 
that Jesus healing people was, first of all, not his first concern. It wasn't the reason he went from one place to another. The reason he went from one place to another was to preach the gospel of the kingdom. So the message of eternal salvation was of much greater importance to Jesus than the healing of any individual person. Because if he wanted to, he could go to any place and just wave his hand and heal everybody in that town. Right? So that wasn't his goal. But what he did is he used the healing of individuals to show his power to save their souls. So when he healed the paralyzed man, the paralytic that was dropped through the roof, the first thing he said is, your sins are forgiven, right? Well, what's easier, to forgive sins or to heal this man's body? Okay, get up and walk. I want, I want you to know that I can do both, but showing that I, he can get up and walk is just proof that I can forgive sin, and that's much, much more important. So when he healed this woman, it was just demonstrating that he has the power to heal, to, to mend the brokenhearted, to um, set the captive at liberty. And so he does this for this woman, and he does it with amazing compassion. You might look at the story and say, well, how did Jesus choose to heal her? She just touched his garment, and then she was healed, almost like magic. But if you back up from this story a little bit, and you think about that moment before God said, let there be, before all of this world was created. What, what does the Bible say in Ephesians? That Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. So before he said, let there be light, he knew of this day and of all the days that would come. And though Jesus in his humanity may not have known at that moment who touched her, he certainly knew before he came to the world, before he created the world, all of what would happen, that God the Father knew, and that this compassion was showed. It wasn't as if Jesus went around everywhere and people were just touching his garments constantly and everybody's being saved. Okay, Jesus knew all of this and had determined to save this woman and to heal this woman and to have compassion on this woman. And so at that moment, he might not have known, God knew, and it was the plan all along. And so, the question for us is, do we have compassion on the outcasts? Isn't that just such an obvious lesson? Like, Jesus was showing so much compassion on the people of society that everybody else said was unclean, untouchable, don't go near them, that person's got demons, you want to stay away from that guy. Like, you don't want to go near this leper, or this woman, or this man, or all of these people that everybody else has ostracized, wants nothing to do with. And Jesus is always just showing so much compassion on people like this. I think when we think of outcasts, we sometimes get like an idealized perspective of what an outcast is. Like if I said, would you show compassion on an outcast? You might picture somebody who is a really nice person and just has a kind of a, a a really difficult lot in life at this moment. That's that somebody has been kind to them or left them, and now they're you know struggling. And you're going to be kind of the hero that comes in and saves the day for them. But most of the people that are unclean, that are outcasts, a lot of times their sin put them there. Right? They're not these like perfect people who just got a bad lot in life. And when we think of an outcast, don't just think about the little girl that needs your help. Think about the the druggie, who's been stealing from his parents for a long time, who's ruined all of his relationships, right? 
That's an outcast. Those are the people that you look at and nobody wants anything to do with. Jesus shows compassion on, on outcasts. Right? I mean, who is it in your life when you think about that person, you think, no, not them. Not the refugee. I'm not going to help them. Not this girl. She's, she's really easy. I'm not going to help her. She deserves what she's getting. Isn't that how we think? That the people that are struggling around us deserve what they're getting? Can I tell you the answer to that? They do. They do. Right? And we do. Because there's not a person in this room that doesn't deserve eternal condemnation. And so, why is it that we're so quick to judge other people because we've determined that their sins are worse than ours? We have no idea what even got them there. But what I do know about them and about me is that I was born with a sin nature and I've chosen to rebel against God by my own choice. And so my rebellion might look a little bit different than them and my environment and my upbringing might have been very different from them. There's so many things that have gone into the decisions we've made, but what I know is true about them and me is that we're both guilty. And so there should be something in a Christian that is able to have compassion on those who don't deserve it, on the outcast, on the untouchables. Who are we to determine who gets our love, who gets the love of Christ through us, and who doesn't? Jesus always had time for the outcast. In fact, he seemed to go to them so much more often. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is once again having compassion on sick people. And he said, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ, then your ministry has to be to those who are sick, to those who need a physician, to those who are unrighteous and need to be called to repentance. Jesus is pointing us toward the people that he loves, the least of these. So Jesus always had time with the outcast. The second thing we see very clearly in the story is that Jesus will only heal those who come to him with nothing but faith. And I want to give like a, a clarification. I'm not saying that Jesus will heal you of your physical need the moment you have the right kind of faith. That's not it. That's not what the story is teaching. The story is showing us Jesus' power over everything. And his power to heal is a demonstration of his power to forgive. Forgiveness is the much greater miracle than, than the physical healing. But he will not heal or forgive any person who comes to him with anything other than faith alone. He specializes in hopeless cases. In fact, when you look at the Bible, you find that the people who are saved are the people who at at one point or another realized that they were hopeless. There was no other option. There was no other person to turn to. I think the reason that, that Mark gives us so much information about this woman that she was sick for so long, that she suffered so many things, that she was humiliated and ostracized, that she spent all of her money and now she's poor. She had nowhere else to turn. It's because he wants us to picture what it is to be hopeless and helpless and to see that this is the woman who receives the care of Christ. Why? Because she came to him with completely empty hands. Nothing else to offer. 
George Mueller says, faith begins where man's power ends. And if what we need is faith when we come to Christ, then we need to realize that we have no power. Come to the end of yourself and you'll find him. The world is filled with religious people, right? Good people, good people, who are doing their level best to present something good to God. They want to show him that they're worthy of his grace. They want to merit the love that he's shown toward them. The irony is this. The only way they come to him is with nothing. As soon as you think you have something to offer, you are immediately disqualified. If the woman comes to Jesus with faith and anything else, she gets nothing. If the woman comes to Jesus with faith and medicine, the crowd will always believe it was the medicine that healed her. And so if we come to Jesus and people around us can say, yeah, no, I think, I think that was really just this person's effort that helped them, that saved them. Do you know what I heard? I heard recently that there was a study done and um, alcoholics, uh, the only cure for the vast majority of alcoholics is turning to God for help. Now, this is not like a Christian study. Um, why is that? Because they have to come to the end of their self before they can really ever be helped, the end of their power. There's an urge for me right now to get ahead of myself in the text because we've seen the demoniac and we've seen this woman. And next, not next Sunday, because it's Easter, but the Sunday after that, we'll talk about the man. And so you have to come back on Sunday night if you want the rest of the trilogy. Okay? And everybody wants the third episode, the final, right? So that was cheap. <laughs> but they all have one thing in common. They desperately need Jesus. Her faith was not perfect. It was somewhat ignorant, right? I mean, she had this superstition that touching Jesus' garment would heal her. I don't know where she got that. I don't know why she thought that, but that's what she thought. It was kind of foggy. It was uninformed. Um, And it, it was maybe a little bit selfish, right? She wanted healing for herself. So when we look at her faith... We don't say, man, just like she knew it all. She had it all figured out. She came to Jesus exactly perfectly. But what we do say is she came with nothing else, and she came to the right person. She knew who to come to. She knew that he could heal her brokenness and that her faith was real. There is a lot to learn about Christianity. There's a lot to know about Christ. I recognize that. But you don't need to know everything about Jesus to know that you're broken and that he's the only one who can heal your brokenness. You come to him with somewhat ignorant faith. So many of us, I mean, we like to look now and look at people like, well, you have to come to Jesus for, you know, every right reason. You have to come because you want to see his face forever. Yeah, okay, that's better. But a lot of us came because we are terrified of hell. It's kind of selfish, isn't it? I, I talked to Spencer. Spencer's hilarious. Um, if you can, if you have a long time, have a conversation with him about God. And he came to us and said, I, I don't think I'm saved. And I said, why don't you think you're saved? Um, he said, because when I prayed, I was only praying so that I didn't go, have to go to hell. And I don't think that's a good reason to come to Jesus. It's like, yeah, you're right. But that's the reason most of us come, Right? 
scared of death, scared of hell. And do you know what's glorious? That Jesus takes this ignorant, even a little bit selfish faith that's real, that's authentic, and as we grow in our relationship with him and come to know him better, then we come to realize that there is so much better reason to come to faith in him than just avoidance of hell, right? We, he, he grows us and teaches us, and we learn how to have more informed and less selfish faith. But when we come to him, I want you to know that he loves the outcast, and you can come to him and not know everything about him. If you know that you're a sinner, if you know that you can't save yourself, you can't clean yourself up enough, but you are within yourself hopeless and helpless, and you understand that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for your sins, that he died the death that you deserved in your place, and that he was buried and he rose again victorious from the grave, and that now he's offered you this gift of salvation and you'll repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, he will save you. You don't need to know everything about him to know that. And it'll be a glorious experience as you grow in him after that. But that's the first step, and that's how this woman comes to him. In the crowd, this woman was touched by many people. Do you know what happened when she was touched by those people? Nothing happened to her. And she made them unclean. Now, whether they knew it or not, that was the case. And do you know what happens with one another? When I sin, do you know when I, you know when I sin against somebody? You know what often happens? I sin against Tara. Do you know what often happens? She sins back. <laughs> That's what we do to each other, right? We pass our sin on. We're not fixing each other. We're not the answer. Um, now, hopefully that doesn't happen all the time, and we have good marriage, and I don't want you to go home worried about us. Um, but I want you to get that this, this woman was touching people all the time. Nothing was fixing her, and she was only making other people unclean. But that's not true with Jesus. She came to him, she touched him, and she was healed. And later, he would bear the burden of her uncleanness and her sin and your sin and my sin, and he would take it to the cross and pay for it all. We come to Jesus, he takes our sin and our uncleanness away, and then he bears that burden to Calvary. Galatians chapter 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And so you must know that you are a lost sinner. You must know that he has the ability and the, and the capability to save you. And you must come to him. Reach out to him to save you. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is only by grace that any of us are saved. Can you imagine if this woman had just left let Jesus pass by without reaching out to him. What a sad decision. I would urge you this morning not to make that mistake. If you're a believer in Christ, let's show love to the outcast. And if you don't know Christ, today can be the day that you reach out to him and you ask him to be your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for 
how you use these stories that are 2,000 years old to speak so clearly into our lives today. Lord, I thank you that we have been encouraged by the example of Christ to um, take the love of Christ and the compassion of Christ and to share it with those that he shared it with, with the outcasts. Lord, I pray that we would uh, see ourselves as lost sinners saved by grace and that, that because of that, we would look to others who are lost sinners and need grace. Lord, I pray for any person this morning that, that knows that they're broken, that they recognize the sin in their lives, and that they know they have nothing to offer a holy God. And Lord, I pray that you'd help that person this morning to reach out to Jesus Christ for salvation. Help them to repent of their sin, turn from it, and turn to Christ. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work as we sing the song. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.